Salvador Perez has designed for many TV series, including Castle, Moonlight, Veronica Mars, and The Mindy Project, where he was nominated for an Emmy for costume design. Perez worked on the films Pitch Perfect 1, 2, and 3, Think Like a Man 1 and 2, Men of Honor, and Drumline. Born and raised in Central California, Perez attended LA's Fashion Institute of Design and Merchandising to pursue a career in fashion design. When he discovered his costume manufacturing talents, he began running costume workrooms and assisting on films like Titanic, The Flintstones, and Barbed Wire. Perez also designed and developed the movie legend lines for the J. Peter Min catalog, a line of jewelry for Bobble Bar, and a signature line of colorful coats for Guilt.com. He's the elected president of the Costume Designers Guild. Salvador Perez, welcome to the creative process. Thank you. It's nice to be here. So, you're a longtime costume designer. You're president of the Costume Designers Guild. Um, you worked your way up. Just tell us a little bit about your story. I mean, you've, you've really inhabited all the roles in terms of costuming, right? Oh, absolutely. Well, you know, ironically, I went to design school. I went to FITM right out of high school to become a fashion designer. I thought I would be Calvin Klein and have my own brand. Mm -hmm. um, and then I took some bumps and I went, you know, after design school, I went to beauty college and I was a licensed makeup artist because I just, you know, I was trying to find myself. I knew I wanted to do something in the arts, but I couldn't figure out what it was. Mm -hmm. um, and my, I was a licensed esthetician and I worked as a makeup artist. Mm -hmm. um, and I sort of sewed on the sides and I would make wedding gowns and, you know, I, I sewed for a living. And then, um, I was working in retail, and somebody's like, oh, we need somebody to help us finish sewing. We're not going to get done in time. And I'm like, uh, I sew. Mm -hmm. And she introduced me to a, a seamstress, and I started making clothes for films. And the whole time I was doing that, I sort of thought, well, I'm just doing this until I have my fashion line. And then film became the next film and the next film. And I got, I went from Stitcher to Workroom Supervisor. And I, you know, I ran the workrooms on Stargate and Titanic. Um, and I built these costumes for these big movies. And then... Um, uh, I was an assistant costume designer, and I worked on The Phantom, and, and then one of my bridal clients, um, Tracy Edmonds, who was married to Kenny Edmonds, were producing the movie Soul Food, mm -hmm. and I was actually on Titanic, running the workroom on Titanic in Mexico when I got the call, like, do you want to design a full film? And I'm like, okay. I mean, it was, again, I always thought this was just sort of my temporary job until I became a fashion designer. Yeah. And then I got offered a design job, and I designed the movie Soul Food. Uh -huh. um, and then I met a production designer on that show who got me my next TV show, um, uh, Fourth of Gene Hope Street. And and then, the, you know, I just went from film to film. And I and the director of Soul Food directed um, Men of Honor with Robert De Niro and Charlie Theron. And I got to do that. And I just now I've been designing for 20 years and I'm the president of the Costume Designers Guild. And I can't imagine doing anything else. <laughs> oh, that's lovely. I really think that's like the, the art of casuality. It's just one project leads into the next. And before you know, it, it's kind of nicer because sometimes people like set themselves on just one thing. And it's nice when you can, in a casual way, I don't want to say fall into it because you worked really hard. But, but I really loved fashion. And I fell into costume design. And I think that I just, I, I like the idea of storytelling through clothes. Yeah. So it sort of works. And then, you know, meeting somebody like Mindy Kaling, who was a total fashionista, where I got to do storytelling through clothes, but I also got to play fashionista and yeah. design contemporary oh, clothes and, yes. then, and then when, and gowns for the red carpet. And then even through the Mindy project, I designed a line of jewelry for Waffle Bar and I designed a line of coats. 
um, for guilt. So I've got to play fashion designer in that same sort of way, but I, with a with a nod towards costume design. Because yeah. I think that every day when we get dressed up, we're telling a story. You know, exactly. I'm happy today. I'm sad today. So whether you're telling a story for the people at work or you're telling people the story for your character on ca on camera, I think that we tell a story every day about what we wear. Yes, and fashion designers look so much now to television and film, but it's nice that the people, when they associate your clothes with a feeling, perhaps more so than they would really brands that don't have, you know, they have a, the model, but they don't have like an emotional story necessarily. And I yeah. think that's it, is that as a, as a fashion brand, you are trying to sell to a, a huge market yeah. and as a costume designer you're pleasing one person mm -hmm. <laughs> or well many there's a director there's a producer there's a studio mm -hmm. but you're, you're you know you have a character you're addressing I, I i think i was too naive and i didn't and i didn't know enough about film i probably would have been geared towards that mm -hmm. but i found it organically mm -hmm. and now it's my passion yeah, no, it's really beautiful. And we don't often, th I mean, you think about it, and people in the fashion world and people in the costume world, and I think in the film and television world and theater world, really think a lot about how sometimes the, the clothes one wears, the 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 close the p closest possessions to us but the, the, those things that we they can stand in for a character, really. They can almost, like, you put that on stage or on screen and that can be, oh, yes, a memory is evoked, yes. And the thing is, when we'd have fittings with Mindy, and they were, I mean, most actors, you have to drag them to a fitting, and Mindy would come in on a weekend or come in on her lunch break. Oh, yeah. Or on, on a day off, we'd have a four or five hour fitting. And, and I had the script, so I knew the stories we were telling. And I, and I had an idea, like, oh, I want you to be a vixen here. I want you to be sweet here. I want you to be sexy here. And as we were having the fitting, we would be, you know, like, we put on a dress, and a lot of times we'd be like, we'd both be like, dinner scene, or over oh, the party, and we knew instantly when she put, <laughs> yeah. and then I think that we were, because we were telling a story through the clothes, mm -hmm. um, and then when, when I couldn't find what I wanted, we started to make them, and mm -hmm. Mindy had never, you know, who has that, you know, the luxury of a whole workroom just for you on yeah. a show, so it was such a, and I also had a phenomenal cutter fitter, Savorn Price, who, mm -hmm. people like rave about my designs, but my designs would be nothing without a, amazing hands to make them uh -huh. and Saborn Price is truly a goddess and she did it's an innate talent that she just understood Mindy's body so well and we would custom make corsets for her and it was just about making Mindy feel beautiful and that was the fun part of the job. Oh, that must be so, because you can see that you and your team, you know, made these beautiful clothes for her, these colorful clothes, and she's like such a colorful character in, I mean, in life, I imagine, but in and the, in that show and in the other show that you're working, Never Have I Ever, you've just now, it's soon to be broadcast. And, yeah, I mean, yeah. And that was sort of fun because it was, it's very loosely inspired by Mindy's life growing up as a, you know, first generation Indian American in America, and just mm -hmm. sort of being that awkward teen and all the things she felt, but she sort of contemporized it and made it about a modern girl in L.A. But it's like, what? It, I, and when I started to design the show, I spoke to Mindy and Lang Fisher, the, the showrunners, the producers, and they're like, well, we don't want them to be fashionistas, but we want them to be fashionable. Yeah. <laughs> so like, they're, ner they're nerds, but they're fashionable nerds. And it was like, if you're young girls trying to be individuals, what was the spark of Mindy as a teenager? Like, what would she have dressed like as a teenager? As opposed to the diva she is now as a grown-up, where she has the funds and the ability and the yeah. wherewithal. But what would that young girl have the inception of her style? Because I think that, you know, I in high school, I thought I was the coolest thing in the world. <laughs> design school, I really, I mean, every day at design school, we sat on the steps of the school and we had, like, lunch. 
we thought we were in a fashion show and I look back at those photos and I'm like oh my god what were you thinking but <laughs> the naivete of youth where you think I'm so fabulous I think that in your youth you think everything is fabulous so that was sort of the concept of of Davy, the lead character in Never Have I Ever, she's this young girl discovering herself and being experimental with clothes, and she's not following fashion because Mindy Lahiri never followed fashion. She always sort of had her own spark, but it was very fashionable. And so to be able to dress high school girls without the budget, Mindy Project, because the Mindy Project guy gets been whatever I wanted. This was like on a budget. What could the average girl going to basic stores put together and make themselves look fun and unique and individual and I think I'm very excited for people to see Never Have I Ever because it's my work on a different level it's the younger teenage girl version of it that's really interesting and it seems like Mindy is such a, a fun person to, to work for and to collaborate with and I imagine as a designer that you're given this uh, large palette and that must be great it's like going to a, a fairground or whatever we, we use that term all the time it's a palette because Mindy's world is very colorful and when she decided to produce and create Four Weddings and a Funeral, um, it's such an iconic film. And so we yes. wanted to make sure that our version was you know, unique to its own. But what she did, the edict she gave me, she's like, I want you to do what you did for Mindy Lahiri on the Mindy Project before the entire cast. I don't want just one person to be a fashionista. She's like, I want everybody to be a fashionista. So to be given that sort of edict and the leeway to do it, and then to go do it in, in Europe, and I got to live in London for nine months, and I wow. got to shop it in London and have it made in London. It, I really, and I very concentrated, like, I was like, well, this is an American, and how would an American dress? And how would an American dress when they just got to London? And how would an American dress who's been there for six months? And how do the English dress compare to the, and so it was very fun to sort of get out of my comfort zone, mm-hmm. go to a foreign country, and you know, because it is, even though we speak English, it's a foreign country. There's, yeah. there, uh, I had to learn English to speak to my English crew. <laughs> <laughs> like little things like I would be like you know what what size um, you know uh, pants like what what are, what's your pant size and whenever I asked an actor that they would be very shocked because to us <laughs> yes, well, I know pants or pants or well but to, to the Europe they were underwear exactly and so I'd have ladies like why would you want to know that I'm like well because I need to buy I'm bringing my own I'm like no no, wait, no you're not bringing your own you know but I mean like a jumper it's like it's not a sweater it's a jumper and they're not tr- they're not pants or trousers and a vest to me is a, you know it was just very funny to go to and I had to learn to speak English to go work in London. <laughs> No, that's great. And so you speak about palettes. And so, um, but you've been, I mean, I imagine for, I mean, I imagine this is by design too. Um, You've also done the Pitch Perfect. You've had a chance to do really, you know, large ensembles and that must be great too. But then what are the other challenges then you're designing for, you know, has to work as a costume. It has to tell an emotional story, but also it has to tell a dance music story too. It has to work that way. Well, having done the trilogy of the Pitch Perfect movies, it was great because I was there at the inception of the characters, mm-hmm. and you know their characters by what they're wearing. Not, not only what they said, obviously, because their, their words were written by the writers and the producers and the actors themselves, but I gave them a visual appearance. Mm-hmm. And having done all three of the movies, as the women matured and grew up, because that was when I did the second one, Elizabeth Banks directed it, she's like, they're not college girls anymore, now they're young women. Mm-hmm. So what is what would they dress now? So we had to heighten how they dressed for the second one, because you took inspiration from who they were as young mm-hmm. girls, you know, college freshmen, so now they're graduating college, and who are they now? And so it was great to see that evolution. And then doing the third one, so now they're they're out of college, they're in a working world. How do they, It was great to take those girls on a, you know, eight-year journey. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's ten characters who have to look so individual, and there's this great shot of them in the casino scene, coming, and they're all in gowns, they all have to, all have to be in party clothes. And to, to find a dress for one person is difficult. To find 10 dresses for 10 different women that each expresses who they are and that they look different from each other 
was a chore. And then you had to get, not only, and it's a film, so you don't need one dress, you need five or six of the same dress. So then I had to find, you know, 10 dresses that I can get six of that were put, you know, it was, it's, I think people think of costume design as like you just go to the mall. It's like there's mm-hmm. so much more to costume design than shopping. I think mm-hmm. shopping is 30% of what I do. There's psychological, there's art, there's communication. Um, it's, you know, but, uh, you know, I like to be able to stretch my muscle. And I think that I was known for the long, you know, doing Veronica Mars and Castle and Mindy Project and, you know, and for weddings and it's like addressing people in very fashionable clothes. Mm-hmm. And as costume designers, we want to be able to have a range of things that we can do. So, after I took, finished a show with Mindy and before I did Four Weddings, I did Goosebumps too, which mm-hmm. is a children's monster movie. There was no fashion, there was no Prada, there was no Louboutin, but it was fun to stretch that part of my, my design brain that I haven't used in a long time, which was creating monsters and building things and dressing children. Because we're still telling a story, it's just not through fashion at this point, it's now through texture. <laughs> I know, it's so, it's so fascinating that, and as I was thinking, there's almost no, and now because you've also wor- you also work with the dance and the music, but there's not, almost no department of, say, a television show that you wouldn't be in communications with. As you say, it's also a communications role. Being a costume designer. Oh, completely. Because I mean, you know, what are the shoes they're wearing? What's the dance floor going to be? What's you know, mm-hmm. uh, what what is the color of the sets? So and the costumes stand out from the sets. I mean, it, it's really a collaboration. Mm-hmm. And you, you know, I'm. I think that you know, I'm. I always make best friends with hair and makeup because they are the crown to my costume. You know, a lot of times it's a collaboration. We want to talk about like, well, let's do gold eyes for this, or let's do a smoky eye for that, or let's do a ponytails for this uh, that it doesn't doesn't catch onto their collar. And it's really about communication with every department you know one of the you know people think about is sound mm-hmm. um when they record when they film a movie the actors have a, a, a pack on with a little mm-hmm. you know uh, microphone on it and there's a wire that goes to them so you can record it well you always have to try to figure out how to hide that yeah. and if they're in a skin tight dress sometimes there's no place to hide it so mm-hmm. you communicate with several departments on how we can make this movie yeah, and I was just thinking because I haven't. I mean, really, and I really would like to celebrate more the co- the, the costume designers guild and include more costume designers because um, my my grandmother was also involved in fashion, so we always had. I felt lucky. I had a get to dress up all the time, and we had great so walk-in closets. <laughs> yeah, I get it. I really appreciate, and we she had us there sometimes. So you know, like there's there's deadlines, and we're all there. So I had fun totally doing that, it. the dress up, and but I. Had I didn't realize this, uh, the extent, you know, in terms of film and television, because I, I interviewed Tony Walton, of course, you know, his of many course. productions. An amazing, amazing Tony Walton. Yes, and like his first film was Mary Poppins <laughs> with his then wife, <laughs> Julie Andrews. Um, so, but then I didn't realize this extent to which almost, I don't know what to say, you're kind of like a little, like you're there building the character before the first day of shooting, before all that, and you're hearing maybe... Yeah, helping build the confidence of the the actors as they they want to fill this role, you know, and I, I imagine well, like making them believe it. A lot of times, actors and I've had this before is would actually say the first time they see themselves with a character is in our fitting room. We're yeah. the, they're usually we're usually the first person they talk to. They're they're cast. Uh-huh. The first phone call they get usually is from a costume designer. Mm-hmm. Like, hi, nice to meet you. What size are you? What size bra do you wear? <laughs> Very intimate <laughs> conversation. <laughs> then they come to our fitting. They get undressed. And then yeah. we dress them in their characters. And always that, that, that moment in the fitting where their eyes light up and they're like, I feel the character. I get this. I remember the, I took over from the first season of, of uh, uh, Castle. And 
uh, Stana Kadak, who played Beckett on the castle. I, you know, uh, what, you don't always get to do this because of what's an actor is really big and then not the time, but early on, I like to take an actor to the mall mm -hmm. because I want to go through the mall with them and I want to see what they look at and what clothes they go to. And also, you can bring like 37 dresses in, but only three fit. Well, let's try them on in the store and then mm -hmm. I see what fits you and then I buy more of those. But we were shopping through Saxon Avenue and we found this beautiful dark hunter green leather trench coat mm -hmm. and I slipped it on her and she's like Serpico and I'm like yes <laughs> 70s detective that's, that's what your character is it's the female version of Serpico modern day but it was that one garment that inspired us for how her character would dress the whole show mm -hmm. and and I remember just we, we put it on and we both and we both knew instantly this was a silhouette for her character let's go in this direction and that happens often you find the character in the fit and you might have lots of ideas mm -hmm. but people wear clothes differently but it's like when they put in it when they embody when they feel they're the character mm -hmm. you as a costume designer have done your job yeah then they can breathe within the, the that role and know within those senses so yeah i think a lot of people don't i think they know i think fashion people know of course and then the actors and the, anyone who's involved in it closely but to the extent that i mean depending depending on what, what kind of um, television show or film it is, where sometimes they are, it's so well costumed that it's just, you don't think about it. You just don't, it just becomes, oh, it's, it's them, right? Right, and, and that's sort of things. The costume should add to the story. It shouldn't distract you from the story. Because mm -hmm. a lot of times, you know, because I, well, you know, I, it was up to me, you'd obviously be in Sparkle and Rhinestones. <laughs> and every now and then, Mindy's like, no, no, this has to be subtle. You want you to pay attention to what she's saying, not what she's wearing. Which is funny, because you think, you know, as a costume designer, oh, it's all about what they're wearing. But no, sometimes you, you also have to be subtle in your in your decisions. It doesn't always have to be the, the red sequin dress. Mm -hmm. um, it could be a white blouse and jeans, and you're still telling the story. And I think that that's, again, part of costume design. It's like, you know, their the costume has to be appropriate. You wouldn't put somebody in a gown to wash dishes at home. Mm -hmm. So it's the same thing. It's like the, the costume has to be appropriate to the scene. I mean, with Mindy, on the Mindy Project, it, you know, she'd wear sequins for daytime. We, you know, mm -hmm. we just sort of, you know, yeah. made jokes about it. But that's because the character was that sort of avant-garde and she was in your face. So you had to have fun with it. But as a, as a general rule of costume design, the most subtle things, the fit of a T-shirt, the tech mm -hmm. of it, is it bright white or have you tea-dyed it? So that's a little creamier. Is it oversized? Is it tight? Is it V-neck? It's, it's the, you know, there's a million ways to put a T-shirt and jeans on an actor, and mm -hmm. you're telling a different story by each each way you do it. Yes. So yeah, I, I just I just can't imagine. And then also you have to coordinate. I don't know to what extent with the scenic, the whole backgrounds of it. I, I always am amazed when everything is coordinated. I thought, how many well, conversations? It, it, yeah, exactly. Because that's the whole point. Is like you don't want to put a red dress that they walk into a red room. Uh -huh. um, and you know you you want to communicate with again set and the lighting. It's like how are you going to light the scene? Is it going to be low light? If if they're going to shoot this at night in low light, don't put her in a navy blue dress because she'll disappear. Mm -hmm. But you also don't want to put her in a white dress because you put a little bit of light at night at night, dark and bright. So it's about it's a collaboration. So the cinematographer, the art department, the makeup and hair, we all have to communicate so that we're all telling the same story. It's so interesting the different. Um... I, I suppose you don't have like a f favorite things, but maybe there are certain dresses that, or certain. Primarily, you designed for women, I, I think. But I also know that you're looking. Well, you. I guess there's always no, more. I mean, yes, I think that. I mean, I think that there's there's yes. Right now, I'm mostly known. I think people think of me as dressing fabulous women, but I also love dressing beautiful men. And mm -hmm. um, you know, when I did the show Moonlight with Alex Laughlin many years ago, it was oh. my first vampire show. Wow. I had that man could wear clothes like there was no other person in the world, and he just uh -huh. wore suits beautifully. And I love finding a great shirt tie suit combination. 
And I think that again, I'm, I'm, I used to be intimidated by menswear because I, you know, my father was a mechanic. I grew up in a small town. I didn't know about ties and suits, and it wasn't my thing. But yeah. as I've grown as a costume designer, I now, I and I and, and one of the nicest compliments that I can get from actors is like, I would never put the shirt and tie suit combo. I love this combination you did because I really look at it as textures. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that if, especially like shows like Four, uh, Four Weddings and Funeral, the men on that show were as equally peacocky as the women. I love you know a great pocket square with a tie that matches and a little foulard and suspenders and a, and a striped shirt with a striped tie and a texture. I love the same way I do prints on prints on women. I love doing that on men. I just think that clothes can be much more interesting. And at the same time, I'm all about a navy suit with a navy shirt and, and, and chocolate brown shoes. And I can I can do the subtle. I just think that, you know, there's many ways to dress a character and I love the textures, whether it be men or women. I'm more known for women because I think of you know, Mindy Project and men and and the uh, Pitch Perfect movies, but I love dressing men. Right. And who for you are um, in childhood when maybe your aesthetic imagination was being formed? And and <laughs> now, throughout the years, like who, who are the style icons for you? And maybe we should differentiate between style and fashion, but you know, the. Yeah. I think what, what, I mean, I grew up in a small town near Fresno called mm-hmm. Reedley, California. Mm-hmm. It was agricultural. I mean, most people worked in some had a farming, and my father was a mechanic. Mm-hmm. Um, I started reading books. And Judith Krantz used to write these novels like Scruples and Princess Daisy. Mm -hmm. And she would describe the characters by their clothes, Mm -hmm. by the crystal, you know, like, you know, the the velvet, the velvet corduroy suit with the green crystal earrings from the 60s. And it was just as a small boy from a small town, not having access to Vogue or the fashion channels that you have now, it really inspired me. So books are what sort of gave me the inspiration. And then, um, you know, seeing, I remember like the Love Boat and Nola Miller's designs for the Love Boat. I mean, it's like, at it, the time it was, you know, Dynasty was just coming out and all those great clothes. And, and I remember the first film that I remember like watching thinking like, oh, who did the clothes? It was Flashdance with Jennifer Beals. Oh, yeah. Michael, Ka- Michael Kaplan. And we just, at the, at the Costume Designers Guild Awards, we just got to honor Michael Kaplan for a career achievement. And I thanked him publicly. I'm like, watching that film inspired me to even consider costume design because I didn't know what it was until I had seen that film. And, and I, I, you know, I'm just, you know, had, I don't know if had, it was just that, that spark. And, and then I got to work with Jennifer Beals, mm-hmm. um, years later, I did a little movie with her. I did actually did a couple movies with her and I have a standee from, from, from Flashdance that she signed to me. And it is one of my most cherished possessions. And she mm-hmm. signed it, Salvador, you are a bright shining light in a fashion wilderness built through the darkness. My love and devotion, Jennifer. The person that was there that inspired me to be a costume designer, loving my work as a costume designer, you know, I'm done. I'm, I can, I can happily never do this again, and I and I've completed my journey as a costume designer. I'm still on it, but it was just that 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 full circle of something that inspired me to that to now appreciate what I do as a costume designer was pretty awesome. Oh no, that's lovely. And there's still, I'm I'm really glad that we have these. Um, you know, this big, that we have, you have, there, there's space for like big designs and patterns and glamour. Um, I, I got, you know, sometimes you go through periods where you see that, um, like, I like a little bit of old fashioned glamour. <laughs> Absolutely. So, I mean, that's, that there's, there's a term of Hollywood glam because I think yeah. Hollywood sort of, you know, made glamour iconic. iconic. Mm-hmm. And I, th- I still think that we get to do that in a modern day version of it. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, no, that's really wonderful. And I think that more people should be encouraged to just, because what I find, I, I love it. I mean, it, I have to say, like, for the last month, I think people, the, the pajama has made a great comeback. But, <laughs> but um, no, but I like. I have to be honest, if I wasn't talking to you on video, I would be in a t shirt and underwear. I mean, because I, only because of you, I got dressed up today. Thank you. I have jewelry on. <laughs> no, but it's, yeah, it's okay. So there's an opportunity for like that. There's there's something about like wearing a good suit or wearing a dress I'm in my normal life I just put on a dress because it's the easiest thing but it looks elegant immediately like I don't even iron I'm like I don't even I just like these things that kind of iron themselves and but it's always elegant and yeah that's the thing is and I think that true style doesn't have to be it can be effort I mean like I mean we had this joke with Mindy like her clothes were never effortless they were effortful like everything with so many layers but I'm all about effortless dressing because yeah. you should be able to throw on a dress throw on a, a necklace and a, and a great shoe and you're done it mm -hmm. shouldn't be an hour and a half of getting dressed I mean that's for an actor who has that kind of time and a crew to do it yeah. but in real life clothes should be effortless you should not have to think about what you're putting on. And I think that, that people who don't have a flair for fashion sort of worry about it. And I think in that worrying, you don't get anything done. It's like, stop it. It's like, I always tell people, like, be experimental. It's mm -hmm. not a tattoo. So mm -hmm. if you put together a combination that doesn't work, don't wear it again. But it's like the world won't end if your red top and green shoes aren't right. Have some fun with fashion. Be experimental. Yeah, it's a way of inhabiting another self, you know, if you if you can really play with it. And so what are some of your go-to pieces for yourself or that you would, for like kind of like instant character or glamour uh, or something? I'm, I'm all about accessories. Uh -huh. uh, I think you can take the most basic outfit and the right accessories, you know, a scarf, a piece of jewelry, a hat, you know, it, you, can, you can also make your outfits you could say that there are like 1001 combinations of three pieces. Yeah. Um, I think that, you know, I'm always about having great accessories. Like, I mean, if you watch the Four Winds in a Funeral, the belts yeah. on that show mm -hmm. had a bigger budget than the dresses sometimes. I mean, wow. I could put an $800 belt on a $20 dress uh -huh. and it made the outfit. I think that it's accessorized. It's like, what, what, what are the earrings? What are the shoes? Um, I really, and, and, you know, like, I remember 20 years ago, there was a belt department at the department stores. They're gone. Mm. There's like a, there's a belt here and there. I remember I had to like go online and find these amazing belts because it really made outfits. And if you look at the show, I used them in many times. A lot of costume designers don't like to reuse clothes. Mm. <laughs> Granted, on Mini Project, we rarely reuse clothes because you know she didn't want to. Mm. But I love going back to a favorite piece and reusing it in a way you wouldn't expect it. Like yeah. you know, you might wear a jacket as part of a suit, and the next time you wear it as a blazer. Um, I'm like when people say, "How do I build a closet?" I'm like, "You buy some great basics. You buy a black suit. You buy it with a jacket, a skirt, and a pant. You mm -hmm. wear them together. You wear the jacket over jeans. You wear the skirt alone. You know." But I think that if you start to build a closet with wonderful pieces, and especially things that are are classic, that aren't you know, a black mm -hmm. pencil skirt is always going to be a fashion. Mm -hmm. um, as opposed to buying bell-bottom pants that will only last a season or two. Mm -hmm. You want to have great staples in your closet so you can either dress it up or dress it down. And I think that that's the trick is buying, you know, a great white cotton shirt and maybe a, a blue cotton shirt, but you could either dress it up or dress it down. And I think those are the, those are the key pieces. And like, and uh, other than like a wedding gown or something formal, don't be so precious with your clothes. Wear mm -hmm. them. And rather than wear out them, you get having had a life with them, than hanging in your closet and getting dry rot on the hangers. Because I see that happen all the time. Like, I'm going to save this dress for a special occasion and then it gets ruined or you outgrow it. No, wear your clothes.
Mm. And I think if, if we speak about um, fashion icons or actors or actresses who've endured, I mean, one that one always speaks about is like Marilyn Monroe, but it's not so much the films when you think about it, it's like the still, this is just a little bit of a segue, it's that her facility for the still image, so she understood that and respected it as an art, yeah. Absolutely, and I think that you know all of these iconic parts of characters. It's it's the dress. I mean, you know that that, yeah. that dress from the Seven Year Itch, that oh, yeah. white pleated dress. That you know that wasn't that wasn't the director didn't tell him to do that. It wasn't the it wasn't the actress. Marilyn is an iconic because Bill Travilla is it Bill Travilla who put her in that white dress. Every costume that has become iconic is because of the costume designer. Obviously, mm -hmm. the actor wearing it made it, but it, the actor alone might not have been as, as iconic, but the actor in the costume is what became iconic. All right. It's good that you mentioned that, too, because we'll be celebrating the Academy Museum of Motion Pictures. I believe the ruby slippers are in that collection. Um, I don't I don't know all, everything that's in the collection that they'll be showing, but what pieces do you think definitely should be or whatever well, in your... I, they don't. The, the 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 film academy doesn't have a lot of costume pieces. Yeah. It's, it's because the problem is that, you know, that the Marilyn Monroe dress is now $4 million. So wow. unless they were donated a long time ago, the academy is not going to have the money to buy these pieces. I'm hoping that what they're doing is collecting pieces now. So mm -hmm. 20 or 30 years from now, they're iconic because it's going to be impossible to go and buy these pieces. Now, I mean, I, I think it's great that something that a cost designer came up with is, the, you know, a dress that, that was put on Marilyn Monroe is now worth $4 million. Mm -hmm. And I think that's part of what I what I would like as part, and I mean, that's one of the one of the reasons the Cost Designers Guild exists is to promote, to promote artist rights and, and protect us. And I think that a lot of times we are forgotten. Mm -hmm. um, you know, a costume designer is work for hire. We'll, we're hired, we design everything for the film, they go make toys and video games and costumes for them, and we don't get a penny of it. Mm -hmm. A musician writes a song for a movie and they get paid forever. An actor is in a movie and they get paid forever. Even the directors get a, get a residual. The, the directors mm -hmm. and, the, and the ADs get a residual. Costume designers don't see a penny for work that they take our work and they can make toys for hundreds of years. Mm -hmm. And we're not respected enough. We don't get any residuals from the work we do yet. And a lot of times they don't, they treat it, I mean, there's actually no in within our, you know, there's, for the union contract, you have to have a DP, you have to have a costume supervisor. You don't legally have to have a costume designer on a film unless clothes are designed, which mm -hmm. means that they're custom made. It's like, well, mm -hmm. I design everything on the show, but it's just that respect. You curate and design, but yeah. Right. Yeah. But, but You're there, that, yeah. If, if, by, the, by the letter of the contract, if we don't make clothes, you don't have to have a costume designer on a film. That's a union policy. Oh. And so it's a, it's a respect level. And so as the president of the Costume Artists Guild, and I've been on the board of the Guild for over 20 years, I was one of the youngest members ever voted to the board. I have fought to get acknowledge what we do, and to and and you know, I, I just it, it, it's sort of sad that we have to fight mm -hmm. this hard to get acknowledged for what we do. But until we're acknowledged and recognized and paid a, a salary and and for commissioner of or the work we do on the show we're going to keep fighting and that's one of the reasons that i'm this is i'm in my third term as president of the cosmos guild because i am trying to move forward and i'm trying to get us a recognition and respect we deserve wow it's so i mean i, I don't think people re realize that so it's so illuminating and so i i wish you and the guild every luck in that i'm a little bit bold so i'm very happy to like so in somebody's ear, you know you should be well, doing that. So if there's some things you think, because now particularly the museum is just being launched this December. I mean, hopefully because everything is delayed or everything is so strange now. But um, if I can say, you know, this is what should be. Yes, we, 
We would love to, I mean, with the Costume Designers Guild had a collection of illustrations that our members donated to the Costume Designers mm -hmm. Guild. Yeah. But we didn't have the finances or, or, the, or the system to restore them. They had to be in paper, they had to be climate controlled. We didn't have that. So the Costume Designers Guild donated our entire collection of illustrations to the Margaret Herrick Film uh, Library. Uh -huh. So now they're being taken care of, they're being curated properly, and they're being taken care of. So now they have those there. But mm -hmm. I think that the studios need to save they, and they're doing it now because mm -hmm. I think the 20 years ago it wasn't as important but now studios have these archives mm -hmm. I mean Warner Brothers has every costume prop or car ever made from ever film ever it mm -hmm. is one of the biggest collections of movie props and memorabilia in the world yeah. and they don't do much with it. I mean, mm -hmm. they have a few, they have the Harry Potter exhibit and they have a small museum at Warner Brothers in LA, but their archives are vast. So 20 years ago, it was very hard to collect these things. Once the movie was done, the clothes were used and they got rid of them mm -hmm. and nobody saved them. Like, we don't know where the black and white ascot dress from My Fair Lady is. Oh. And it just disappeared from Warner Brothers. And, we don't, and, and it's sort of like, we know that somebody has it because somebody, you know, ended up with it and it has not reappeared. I went to a costume house in Italy, and they had all of the costumes from Cleopatra mm -hmm. that had been, you know, that had been, and and of course, you know, the costume house is many generations old, and they don't have the money to maintain them, and they're hang on hangers, and some of them are falling apart. And these are iconic treasures mm -hmm. that I can't imagine, you know, wouldn't be cherished. But I think that it's like you, it's so expensive to maintain, especially garments. You have to put a lot of effort and money into taking care of them, and so. It, that's why they're so valuable because there's a, there's an end to the life of them. They won't last forever. Yeah, I mean, I don't know when it, people really started waking up to it, except for like a, some iconic pieces. Because I heard stories from people who have um, fashion historians and who they had gotten into dealing in textiles because they'd saw, seen an opportunity. They'd go to estate sales and they would see these antique furnitures or every, everything was sold and auctioned. And what did they do with the clothing? They they might have wrapped up some. Uh, candelabras in it or something mm -hmm. or yeah. or burned them out in the back when everything was done and this is or real just, uh, history yeah just toss them whatever like and it's really you know that's as much and I think it's to do with and now I'm glad that there is a um a respect for women in the industry I mean costume designers of course but because it Textiles and fashion has always been, even though, of course, the, the prominent um, costume designers have many of them been male, obviously, so many of them, but it's been associated with women. Textiles oh, and fashion I, is you, women. Yeah. You are preaching to the choir. Mm -hmm. This is here's a, this is one of the statistics that bothers me. I'm the president of the Costume Designers Guild. My membership is 85% women. Mm -hmm. Art directors and production designers are 85% more. We are both department heads. We both are a vital part of film. Production designers who are 85% men make 30% more than costume designers who are 30% women. Mm. And we deal with the actors. We're the ones that get them out of the trailers. We get them in their underwear. We, you know, we are such a vital part of the storytelling tell us, story process. But I, I, there's no other reason for it. In fact, they're men, mm. and the men get paid more than the women because we're women's work. We're shop. We sew. It's just women's work. And as a man in this industry, it's hard because... You know, I think that I get away with a little bit more because of the fact that I'm a man. And I've had my female colleagues say, I can't believe you got, you, they gave you that. I'm like, well, because I demanded it. And we are fighting right now. One of our biggest fights with the Costume Designers Guild is pay equity. We should be paid equal to the salaries of the production designers who are men because we're doing the exact same job. There, there's our sets and furniture, ours are costumes. Same job. Um, but again, it's, it's but you, I mean, it's, it's interesting to hear somebody who's not industry say that, that yes, it's textiles, it's fashion, it's women's work. And that's how we're interpreted even in our industry in 2020.
Yeah. I, I don't know. I mean, I feel just as an, an outsider, although my, my stepfather works in TV, so I guess I know a little bit. Just from an outsider, I'm just glad to see that there's a little bit more equity or a little bit more. I'm glad to see these opportunities for women. Um, and I think... I don't know, that's just even the last 10 years. I mean, just think about, like, the first woman who to, to win an Oscar for directing a film or whatever. You know what I mean? This yep. is, like, really recent. <laughs> it's well, not... look, even even when you talk about the fact the salaries between men, there could be a woman who's the head of a star of a movie and her male, co- male counterpart who is, who, is, who is number two on a call sheet. It's paid more than her. She does because she's a man. I mean, the fact that, that you know, Charlie Theron isn't getting paid as much as a man on her show. Charlie Theron, she's an icon. She's an Oscar winner. Mm-hmm. The fact that women, actresses of that status are having to fight for pay equity, and the fact that it's out in the public view is what we're hoping makes. I think people were just not aware of it. It wasn't talked about. I mean, there was that that show with uh, Michelle Williams and Mark Wahlberg who mm-hmm. came back for reshoots, and she got paid eight thousand dollars, and he got paid one point five million for the. And they have the same agent from the same agency. Mm-hmm. And he was paid $1.5 million for the research, and she was paid $8,000. How in any world is that equitable? That How is that, you know, the fact that that's even, ha- and you understand, well, if there was different agencies, and they had the same agency, the information was there, and they just said, well, he's a man, he gets paid $1.5 million, because he demanded it, and she's like, oh, okay, I'll come back to work. And that's what we're, that's why you have to call it a fight for pay equity, because we have to fight for it. And it seems a lot of women, I mean, I don't mind being forthright, but there's a different way of communicating, if we can generalize. So the way a woman might like to communicate, that would be, in general, geared towards suggestion. So it would be geared towards listening, perhaps a little bit more. This is generalization, actually, but it would be towards, you know, uh, thinking of the group, um, not just, like, of myself as an individual. So you would hope that when one was being, one thought was being strong and was not applying so much force, that it would, you're just inviting someone just to do the fair thing. And I would think that that needs to be enough. I don't really feel, you know, if one's doing the same work, if one is considered an, you know, equal in terms of one's star power or whatever, you know, one's experience in the industry. You don't have to be shouting about it, you know, like you've already earned your place. Well, un- unfortunately, as to. we see, yeah. it's, we have to shout about it. I think that I would like to believe that subtlety works, but this is Hollywood. There's no such thing as subtle in Hollywood. I think mm-hmm. you have to sort of demand it and pound your fist. And and then when I say demanded, you don't have to. It doesn't have to be a forceful demand. It's like an ask. I want to be paid this. I want mm-hmm. you know. I want this. And people like you know, if you don't ask for that, not, most people very few people are going to hand it to you without you asking for it. So I think that there's a there's a. Fun, I think the time of that sort of quiet patience is over. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I think that we need to start you know pounding up and saying, I want this. If you want me to do this, if you want me to do this work for you, you will pay me what I'm worth. Mm-hmm. Um, because I think the costume industry has really taken over, and you know, uh, we, we've seen from marketing and branding and ancillary markets that once the film is out, the the, the way they can interpret our designs into toys and dolls and, and costumes and marketing, it, there's there's so much of a market for it. And a lot of times, you'll see these films or a TV show where they're like, oh, like this is the this is the look line of clothes inspired by the show Empire, mm-hmm. but then they don't hire the, the costume designer from Empire; they hire some random fashion brand to, to reinterpret that costume designer's vision. And that's part of the equity. I think if it was a man doing it, you would never ignore them. But since it's mostly women doing it, they're easily ignored and just hire somebody else. My name is Anna Chu, and I'm a junior at McAllister College 
majoring in English. Salvador Perez draws a connection between styling and storytelling and how a character's outfit expresses the thoughts, moods, and memories of the scene. Everybody knows clothing can be a form of self-expression, but to tell a story through clothing is an amazing feat because it gives every scene more meaning than what the storyline and dialogue already offers. Salvador Perez also mentions that designers and stylists are not always credited for the work the way they should be. I want to take some time to highlight the artists behind some of the different costumes and media that I adore. Salvador Perez worked on the Netflix series Never Have I Ever and showed us a teenage girl's wardrobe that managed to pull together her youthful spirit and her need to express herself while also mixing in her culture and the limits she has in her life. I really loved like the simplicity of all the outfits in this show because Davy is 15 and she doesn't have the money to buy designer clothing but she and her friends find a way to make it work with what they have. Davy wants to be taken seriously as a woman instead of like an uncool high school girl. She starts wearing short skirts and high heels to school in order to shift her image. And this is further exemplified when she's dancing with her friends, making this video for social media in like um, a bodycon red tank top dress with her shoulders exposed. And when her mom finds her, she forces Davy to wear this white t-shirt underneath to cover herself up. This moment made me laugh a lot because it shows how Davy wants to be older, but the white t-shirt is the reality of her age and also the expectations that her mother has put on, put on her. Another costume designer that I want to honor is Jacqueline Duran, who worked on Little Women 2019. I am drawn to each and every character in their own right in this movie, and Duran does a brilliant job of distinguishing each of the characters from one another. Meg's beautiful but gaudy pink dress with the debutante ball contrasting with the fabric she buys after she's married tells like a story of yearning for fancier things that she doesn't have. And then Amy's plain white nightgown when, with fairy wings as a child versus the beautiful gowns she wears while abroad paints the character development she goes through from being a young child to a young woman who knows what she wants and needs to do for her family. And then there's Joe and Laurie, who interchange clothes throughout the movie. There's an obvious push and pull between them, how they're friends one minute, almost like lovers the next, and always influencing each other to be the best and worst versions of themselves. Last of all is Janelle Monae's Dirty Computer, an emotion picture released in 2018 that greatly inspired me. Alexandra Mandelkorn is the costume designer for this production, and she puts together these beautiful dynamic outfits for the world Janelle Monae has created in her music. Of course, there are the iconic vagina pants from the Pink music video, which is also tied up with like pool party and sleepover imagery. The clothing during Pink is fun, flirty bralettes and underwears and swimming suits, all in varying shades of pink and skin tones. Then in the Screwed music video, the main character, Jane, and all of her friends are partying, wearing all different kinds of outfits that show their individuality. There's pattern mixing, there's skin showing through mesh clothing, gold earrings, chunky combat boots, and powerful high heels. Every character is full of personality, flashing and wild, and their self-expression is seen as rebellion. Jane's life before is seen as dirty, dangerous to society in this emotion picture, and she is forced to wear this clinical, all-white outfit when she's taken in for cleaning. However, the wardrobe change from the cleaning scenes to the song I Like It is powerful because Jane weaponizes the simplicity of white and black. Even when the outfits and jewelry she wears during this 
music video are much more muted and toned down compared to the crazy colors and patterns from before, Jane still chose it all for herself. And that choice makes all the difference in her being herself versus being a clean computer. In the end, I would like to say to check out the designers and wardrobe people behind the shows and movies you love because you might find a designer whose idea and style inspires you. And that rarely that level of crossover into um, mainstream consumer products isn't really, I mean, in terms of like a revenue spinoff, really, I don't think is, is, is there as much for like home furnishings or something. I don't really see that. I haven't, maybe so, but. Well, that's, I think that's why I think it's more tangible. Um, I think that people want to be able to emulate what somebody's wearing. Obviously, people like yeah. where that sofa come from, but, yeah, but, but it's not, rarely yeah. is that sofa, is that sofa custom made, the sofa we bought someplace. I mean, there's mm-hmm. such an ancillary market for even like people, like, there are whole websites dedicated to the pieces that I bought for mm-hmm. um for weddings and for mindy project and for any show I've ever done like there's people who sit there and 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 reverse image search to figure out where that blouse came from and i'm always shocked like i'll forget like where did i buy that dress and then you go to a website like oh it's from llb and you're like what how did you know that? i mean um but there's definitely a, a revenue stream for post that people want to be inspired by what we are putting on the camera and so a lot of times like you can't if i bought a dress for a show and then the movie comes out a year later well you can't buy that dress anymore so it's like get the look so like how do you inspire? and so i think that one of the things that we can do as costume designers is like well then you should pay us for our, our our thought process and we can tell you well this is the dress that i bought but here's one this is my inspiration for it so you can get the look for less as costume designers we are cut out of the equation whether they're making a toy or an inspired look or a fashion line once our job is done they don't the, the, the studio marketing doesn't deal with us. They don't. They don't think to include us in the conversation, or how is how it's developed to sell to the consumer. You know, it seems to be a kind of if, to speak of it commercially, it seems to be a, like a lost revenue stream because if it was pre. Um, you know, a lot of the, fa- you know, from fashion, a lot of fashion houses like kind of work in tandem and they design things. And I know that you don't want to necessarily be doing a, a fashion. You want something timeless or whatever, something that doesn't date. But um, if you, if the, that branding was to be carried through, it would, it would mean that there's a kind of less pressure even on ratings so that you could even pursue, you know, more niche markets if you know that also there is a way to um, promote or generate income on the design. Absolutely. And yeah. the thing is, I mean, like there's the show, The Kingsman, um, they knew they had you know, magic in a bottle. And mm-hmm. so when, when Ariane Phillips designed the costumes for the Kingsman, she made sure they, they made sure that all the fabric that she used for the costumes was available so mm-hmm. they could do a fashion line. Mm-hmm. And they did a fashion line for Mr. Porter. Now, here's the tricky part, is that you assume that, well, I'm making this movie now, and it's going to come out in December, and and uh, and that's what had the clothes were ready. The tricky part is that what if the movie gets delayed six months and the fashion brand has manufactured these clothes? Well, that's what happened with, with the Kingsman line for Mr. Porter. The movie was delayed three months. And so they had winter clothes that weren't available to sell because the movie hadn't come out. But you don't know that a movie's going to be a hit. Look, mm-hmm. at, here's a prime example is Baby Yoda. Mm-hmm. They didn't know how big Baby Yoda was going to be. And so they didn't make any toys to sell to the market. And then the movie came out, and it was this huge hit, and they're scrambling to, to um, bring toys to the market because people wanted to buy them. That's the tricky part in film. You don't know what's going to become iconic. You don't know. I mean, I've always thought, like, like a lot of times I'm doing a show, and then afterwards Express 
or free people if somebody wants to like do a tie-in it's like well you know what you should have made the sample for the garment i'm going to put on the actor and then we can sell it when the movie comes out mm-hmm. and i think that would be the smartest way for the industry for the for the fashion brands to have something authentic mm-hmm. and for the studio to have an ancillary market because they get a profit of it but we should get a profit of it too of it should just be the studio and the brand we should be it was our inception but a lot of times we'll design a piece for a film that they'll reproduce at Target, whatever. I mean, like when they did Annie, they did a line of clothes from, from the movie Annie and sold them at Target. Um, they didn't pay the costume designer. Mm. Yeah, it's very disrespectful. And well, I, I hope that that changes because you do, do, of course, want to keep your you know costume designers happy and well motivated. I know you do yes. it for the love. You love what you're doing, but you know. <laughs> oh, honey, I love the money too. <laughs> Look, exactly. I, I, I love it more. Yeah. <laughs> I love I love what I do and I'm very happy with what I'm doing. But I'm just saying that there's going to be an aftermarket effect. I should be involved in the profit of that. It shouldn't just be the studio and the brands. Yeah, well, that's not. I'm well. I'm glad that you're collectively, you know, gathering your voices on that and just on something a little bit more. Um, as a sad, I think I, I just read something. I think it was on the guild's website. Are that some costume designers are doing masks because are. Yes, I think that yeah. everybody was talking. You know, now, I mean, this has now been a month-long project, mm-hmm. and um, everybody was sort of like hearing that people needed masks and they, they could make them. So, look, most costumes on sell. I was a stitcher. I went from a stitcher to a working supervisor, you know, to a designer. So I know how to sew very well, and many of my colleagues do too, also. So we were all sort of thinking about doing it and making a few here and there. And then the head of IATSE called us and said, "Look, there are many of our local who sew, costume designers, costumers, props." theater locals can we all get together and as opposed to trying to do a few here let's join our efforts and start making masks for for the healthcare industry and so they organized us and we all got together and we the costume designers guild obviously has more judge than the props or customers so we were able to reach out to sponsors and we got elastic and fabric mm-hmm. and um and then we've been now for the last few weeks i think we've, we've produced over 10,000 masks in the last mm-hmm. couple of weeks that we've distributed to hospitals throughout the city. And that's just, again, we love what we do, and we're sitting at home idle right now. And so mm-hmm. people, we're coordinating our efforts, and so now the locals of Ayatsi are actually making masks. And we're, it's an ongoing, we're, we are now have more sponsors. We've hit our goal of 10,000, and we're, our next goal is 20,000. And who mm-hmm. knows where it'll go from this, because it's not, unfortunately, this isn't going away. But it just shows that, you know, we, it's not always about money. It's like, what can we do for the love of the industry to support our union brothers and sisters and to support the public? I think mm-hmm. that it tells, it speaks volumes about our members that we are giving of our time and using mm-hmm. our talent to help the industry. Well, I think, I think that that's beautiful. I, I'm, I'm only sorry that, that you, your skills, collective skills, I mean, it's beautiful. Are, I'm so sorry we don't have masks. I can't believe it. This is a whole other tangent. I just can't believe. At least we, the only silver lining in all this, it's a few silver linings, I guess. One is that we're appreciating the arts more and that... Um, and that we'll be prepared more next time. I just can't believe we don't have things like masks. Yeah. I, but I also think yeah. that, you know, like, you know, when, when they came to us, like, is this possible? Can we make 10,000 masks? I'm like, hello, we made the bat suit. We made the Black Panther costume. Making a mask is cake. Mm-hmm. And we've sort of, you know, streamlined it. And so it's, I think it's great that, you know, we can make Marie Antoinette's gown. We can also put somebody in a T-shirt and jeans. And we can also make masks to like save lives um i think that that is the that shows you the creativity and talent of our industry in hollywood and you know i think that that's 
I'm, I'm very proud to be a part of this organization, and I'm very proud of the efforts that we're doing. And I think that it's, you know, you, we, sometimes you think about, well, it's just, a, it's just a movie, you're not saving lives. It's like, now we literally are saving lives. Mm. We are changing people's lives. Yeah. And I think that also throughout this, I think that, look, at how, you know, I know personally, I've watched more Netflix and Hulu than I have ever in my life. Yeah, and you don't have time to do it normally. <laughs> normally, no. And yeah. I'm literally like, I'm catching, I mean, I'm re-watching Game of Thrones. I mean, uh, uh-huh. you know, I think that we that entertainment is a great distraction. And if it wasn't for what we do on a regular uh-huh. basis, what, what would people be doing? I mean, at home right now, they're, they're still going stir crazy. Uh-huh. I think the entertainment industry is keeping them sane. Because it's, uh, it's, you know, it's, it's, and I think that I think one of the first energies to go back to work will be entertainment because people need to be distracted. I need uh-huh. to, they to take, I, you know, you can't sit at home thinking about the virus and everything and not going to be able to go to work and, you know, and not, and I think that we, entertainment is a valuable part of our life. And I'm, you know, I think that it, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's really bringing attention to what we do right now when people are staying at home. And, you know, when you chose to watch Netflix on a weekend, but now you're like, thank God Netflix is there. <laughs> yeah, no, it's really, um, there's been a lot of, despite all the difficulties, there's been a lot of demonstrations about how people value the arts and they value community. And that, that's it's nice to have those reminders. I'm just sorry that it's happened at the cost of lives. Um, yes. But I think that I think people, that- yeah. I think that this is an, a, a, a monumental chime in everybody's life. I mean, you know, the air is cleaner in all the cities. Mm-hmm. Um, people are being more creative at home. You know, my costume designers who probably don't get a chance to sew are actually sewing. And maybe when this is over, they'll take that to the next level. Like, how will they will they keep their sewing machines out and keep sewing? Mm-hmm. I, I hope that out of the, the all of the sadness out of this, something positive changes in all of us, and we all become better people when this is over or when yeah. we move forward. Exactly. I think I think that it is uh, those who have uh, you know negative elements in their personalities. Those have come to the fore. You can see there's some, been some demonstrations of that. But I just think you people of understanding what they value and love, and um, so that ha- that has been nice. Um, and um, I think it's also shown us that we can do a little bit with a little bit less carbon, with a little bit less. Yes. Um, so if we can institute some days where we can, like we obviously can, when it's life or death, and we could just think of this as a warning as well for future ecological disasters. So let's we can make some other sacrifices for that too. I, I imagine. Right. Right. We're forced to make a sacrifice now. Hopefully that we realize that you know we can cook at home. I mean we don't have to go out all the time. It's like I would. I was a lazy cook, and so I you know, went out three meals a day. Mm-hmm. Now I learned that that can be very creative. You know, I don't have to go to the grocery store every day. It's like, what's in the kitchen? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, I think that it's, um, you know, I have a pair of shorts that I've lost some weight, so I don't fit them anymore, and I would have normally bought new ones. But you know what? I put my sewing machines out. I took them in. Uh-huh. Like, we have, we, you know, I think that we've become a very disposable society. It's like, well, I can't go to the store. Well, what do I have at home? Mm-hmm. And I think that hopefully that'll just make us all better people. <laughs> That's a really beautiful, sustainable message. So I guess as we're, you know, coming to the end of the interview, it's nice to think about, yeah, let's just reflect on the future because this is an educational initiative. And as you think about, you know, the environment and technology and really now the kind of uh, world we're leaving, the next generation, what do you feel are some of the ways we might include, you know, our current systems? Um, You know, what's important to us and how how might we improve on them uh, to build a better tomorrow? Um, I think, again, the whole sort of sustainability and, like, not throwing things out and reusing them, you know, like, I had a pillowcase that was too long, and it's 100% cotton, 
And um, so I cut it off, and normally I would have thrown that piece off. Well, I'm like, wait, I can make a mask out of this. Mm-hmm. A year ago, I wouldn't have thought that way. And now I'm like, don't throw that away, because I don't have access to cotton fabric. I'm going to use that piece of pillowcase to make a mask. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's that little spark that hopefully we can be as creative all the time, and not when we're forced to, but because we want to. Yeah, so we, we learn those skills as well, you know, that there's, mm-hmm. uh, and not necessarily send it out to, because we can't, you know, transport everything. We just, all this is not available. Um, and how can good design thinking be applied to some of our present problems? Um, I, you know, I think that, again, this this goes back to, like, you might say, reuse in a closet. It's like, I think that we don't, I think we have to stop buying so much. Mm-hmm. And, you know, what's in your closet? What can you reuse? What can you reinvent? What can you alter? As opposed to going out and buying a new dress every month, you don't need a new dress every month. Stop mm-hmm. wasting money. Stop that the car, your carbon footprint doesn't have to be because you've shopped every month. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that's, you know, I think that this time at home alone, where we don't have the chance to go to the stores, is just making us rethink how we can live our lives. Well, I think that's a that's a beautiful message, um, Salvador Perez. So I thank you. I want to thank you for the many colorful and surprising ways you've contributed to the stories uh, we love and the layers you've added to our love for those characters and uh, for the many strong women and men you've helped bring to the screen. And thank you for adding your voice to the creative process. Thank you for having me. This has been very, very fun and a nice distraction for the day. I appreciate it. <laughs> oh, thank you. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk with participation of collaborating universities and students. Associate interview producer on this podcast was Anna Chu. Digital media coordinator is Yu Young Lee. Wintertime was composed by Nicholas Anadolis and performed by the Athenian Trio. Has this interview sparked your creative process? If so, you can submit your creative works to submission at creativeprocess.info for an opportunity to be included in the projection elements of our exhibition Traveling to Leading Universities or published on our website, www.creativeprocess.info. Want to get involved in exhibitions or interviews? Email us at team at creativeprocess.info.